Hello there, and welcome to another Popcorn Tennis Podcast. I'm with our usual co-host, Trihiri, and we are very honoured today to be joined by Gil Gross. Gil, how are you, mate? I'm great. Great to be on with you guys and uh, excited to, to get into this uh, final stretch with uh, Paris Masters in the, in the rear view and uh, the finals coming up. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Uh, really, really looking forward to uh, getting into next week's action. Uh, there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of chat about the groups. Obviously, Paris was pretty well wind. You know, the you know the winner is now the first ultimate. At, you know, the 19 year old Holger Rune. Um, not sure if we'll see him play, but it's it's a really really exciting lineup. Um, I know Shuri has got a lot to say on the uh, on the balance of the groups. <laughs> Right, yeah, we will get to that soon. But uh, let's uh, let's talk about the field. Uh, what I think is this is probably the strongest field we've had since 2015. I want to say, would you agree with that, Gil? Hmm. All right. Well, let's let's. Uh, I haven't thought about about the strength of the field a, a, as a whole. So you have you have Fritz getting in. Um, let, let, let's do it this way. Do you think about that because of the depth in the eight, or do you think about it because of how you feel about the top? Uh, it's just the depth, really, and uh, I would say the matchups as well, because okay. uh, there are only a few matchups that you could think about, which uh, is where you have a clear favorite, right? You have uh, Taylor Fritz, who could match up pretty well against, I would say, five or six uh, of the players here, Djokovic being a pretty nightmare matchup for him. Casper Ruud, again, made the semifinal last year. He did beat Felix uh, in Montreal uh, in the quarterfinal this year. Uh, he's, I mean, he's not in the same group as Rublev, of course, but, you know, he has, he he does have a win against him. Uh, yeah. He, I mean, he's never played Fritz before, but I think that match could really go either way. And I pretty much feel that way about a lot of the matches uh, in general. So I think just going by that dynamic, this is a really intriguing, I, I would say, the most intriguing addition probably in a while, maybe. Uh, is it the strongest? Probably up for debate, but uh, this is what I think. Right. Well, that's that's what I thought your answer to my question would be because at the top, I feel like we've probably had stronger years. You feel good about Novak Djokovic right now in the tennis that he's been playing. He was on the huge win streak heading into that Paris Masters final. Didn't play a good match, in my opinion, against Holger Runa, not to take any credit away from from runa but you know novak missed uh, a boatload of opportunities and sometimes he had nobody to blame uh, other than himself on on some of those occasions um so at the top with with besides novak you know medvedev being more questionable at this point than he has been in the last couple of years nadal although he's never won the event i think in the last couple of years there's been a little bit more intrigue about you know his contendership and his ability uh to, to get a first um, you know, Tsitsipas, I, he's had a good little run post U.S. Open, so so I I wouldn't lump it, him into this, but I think at at the top it's not as strong maybe as it's been. But if you look at the depth, if you look at uh, especially what Felix has done, um, who who comes in as as one of the the lower seeds, but in reality we know that he's uh, a top contender. I do think you can make an argument that this is one of the more up in the air. Uh, ATP finals. I mean, the the green group with Nadal, Rude, Felix, and Fritz, you could tell me any combination in that group and and I'd believe you. And uh, I think that's almost and pretty much true for, for the red group uh, with the exception of, you know, I think you'd be surprised if Novak didn't qualify. Yeah, and I think one of the things I've noticed this year is that I'd say six out of the eight are all very strong on indoor hard courts. You know, Rublev's got a great record at ATP 500 level on the indoor courts. Sitsipas has looked really, really good recently. Audrey seems probably been the best player on the indoor hard courts this whole season. Djokovic has always been good there. Um, Fritz, although I, you know, we haven't seen a whole lot from him on the indoor hard courts, he really suits fast surfaces. You know, Wimbledon, you know, he had a really good crack at Rafa and probably should have won that match. Looked great in Indian Wells when he won the title. Um, and Medvedev as well, of course, who's you know who's won won the title before. Um, so I think I do agree with Shrihiri on that on that kind of point. That it's the strongest lineup we've seen for quite a while. Um, you know, I was thinking back to 2017 when you know Dimitrov beat Goffin at the final, 
And I kind of think back to them and there wasn't really a super strong, you know, lineup of indoor hardcore players. Um, and, you know, we're missing Zverev this year as well. He's also very, you know, very strong on the courts as well. Uh, so, yeah, it's a really, really competitive field. Um, I worry a bit about Rude, you know, settling into those courts because he hasn't shown, you know, since he's in a bit of a post-US Open slump and he hasn't quite shown he's got the level to compete with all these people. I think Rafa can. You know, there's, his main worry is always going to be Djokovic, but, you know, you put a fit Rafa against any of these other players, you give him a fighter's chance for sure. But, uh, yeah, Djokovic is, is his main rival here, so he's definitely going to be quite relieved to miss the group stages. And should be mentioned, you know, that the world number one is missing, which which doesn't doesn't help Shahari's uh, argument um, that, that Alcaraz, unfortunately, uh, tore his, ob- his oblique, so he's on the shelf, but... Um... Other than that, other than that, there's a lot to look forward to. Yeah, you make a good point. Uh, obviously, I, I don't want to say this uh, really baldly, so I'll just, uh, I mean, I'll just say it as it is. But uh, Carlos, I don't know how much of it was uh, due to the injury that he picked up or that aggravated in Paris, but he wasn't looking that great at all uh, after the U.S. Open. Uh, he did obviously lose to Felix at the Davis Cup, which I believe was indoors as well. Uh, he lost early in Astana to David Goffin. Uh, he was really uh, destroyed by Felix in the semifinal in Basel. That was not really close at all. And of course, Paris, he played decently. But I still think uh, game-wise, uh, on, on an indoor hard court, he's probably not there yet. There's still a lot of... Uh, aspects in his game that could be you know exploited uh uh i i would say especially the second serve right or the serve in general he just doesn't have a really good spot serve i would say and uh, he i don't think he's the most comfortable on this kind of surface um maybe a, an outdoor hard court you know the ones like uh the north american ones uh at you know the us open and uh indian worlds in miami where it's look com- comfortable uh and clay are generally his best surfaces but uh, he's not really gotten going, I would say, in his career so far on indoor hardcourt. So uh, from that perspective, it's uh, I I think it's not the biggest void. I, I don't want this to come out in the wrong way. No, no. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, but then if you look at the alternate, he is not someone you, you really would sleep on, right? Because Taylor Fritz has beaten Nadal at Indian Wells. Uh, he pushed Medvedev in the first set in Cincinnati, if I remember correctly. He did have a set point or two. Uh, pretty much was the better player, but ended up losing that set and the match in straight sets. Uh, he's beaten Felix at the ATP Cup. He has Rublev's number. It's safe to say he's beaten him uh, twice this year in the last three times that they've played. Um, so I still think, uh, in my opinion, he's probably uh, a wild card to get to the semifinal from the group. Uh, it could be, uh, you know, prob- Felix is a heavy favorite. I would say from uh, Group uh, Green to get to the semifinal, uh, and then I think it could be a toss-up between Nadal and Fritz uh, as to who qualifies second. So I, I had all of this in mind uh, when I came to the conclusion that this is a really, uh, uh, you know, it's a field that has quite a bit of depth, and you just uh, a lot of matches that could go either way. And I, I think uh, we are up for fireworks in a week. Yeah, you know, with Alcaraz, another thing was just the the wear and tear uh, emotionally more than physically of of the year he's had, and it's very typical to see someone you know win their first major, especially and and have a bit of a hangover. So you know, I'd like to see a little bit more data on the indoor hard court thing. I don't think it's a surface long term that's going to you know I don't think we'll have a Nadal situation where he's clearly worse indoors. Um, with Alcaraz because Carlos actually, you know, he should enjoy the still conditions where he can kind of play the lower margin game, um, which, and, and you're right, you know, the serve doesn't do him any favors at times on this surface. He really, um, he served very, very poorly um, against, against Runa um, in, um, I think I'm, I'm blanking on, oh, Basel um, served very, very poorly in that match. Um, it was Bercy because he lost to Felix oh. in Basel. Felix in Basel is the match I'm referring to, where where he served very poorly. He served Makes better sense, in right? Paris. Yeah, he served better in Paris. I think his his coaches probably told him like, "Hey, like, 
you got to try to do something here. Uh, like go after your first serve because you can't just, it can't just be a nothing um, on indoor hardcourt or, or you're going to get exposed there. Um, so, so we made that improvement. Anyway, I think the calendar spot and the year that he's had has had a lot to do with, with his results um, as, you know, maybe more so than the surface itself and the conditions. Yeah, no, I, I agree on the on Alcaraz. You know, I think he's got a lot of potential to do well on, on these courts as well. Um, I think the serve is the next step, you know. I think a lot of people this year have been thinking, like, where's this guy's weakness? You know, he's so good across the park. And, you know, that run in Madrid was really, really special. I mean, he was, you know, he beat Novak and Rafa back-to-back, and he was just phenomenal. And, yeah, the only thing that ever really cropped up when people were talking about potential weaknesses was the serve, and especially the second serve. And I thought we served pretty well in New York, to be honest. Um, yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of issues, but I think it's, yeah, it's the getting the three points. Um, amazing in get that away final. Yeah, He served exactly. amazing in the final against Root, and he needed to because he had no legs. Yeah, totally. And he, yeah, and I think with his serve, he, he does really well when he's serving, you know, well out wide, and then he can, then he gets a return back and he can unleash on a forehand. Whereas you know, indoor surfaces, you know, you kind of want to end the point sooner than them getting the ball back in the first place. You know, Runa completely outserved in, the, in, in Paris. Um, you know, in, in that second set, Alcaraz served a lot better, even though he was actually more injured in that set than the first set. But he was serving a lot better and keeping it a lot tighter. But, um, you know, his uh, his young 19-year-old rival kind of showed him, you know, the benefit of a really strong serve, you know, in these conditions. I mean, Runa's serve has come on like an insane amount, but it's, Shocking, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, Runa serve. Um, if you if you if you asked me, you know, during clay season, I would have said the serve is a weakness, and um, it it's an insane one eighty because you know at this point it's um, if you look at the second serve, it's one of the fastest in the world. And uh, I think it was a mindset shift. You know, you got to credit the the people on his team and Holger for buying in and, you know, going after his second serve, understanding that that he had the ability to do that um, and to, to kind of trust himself to do that. And uh, yeah, similar to Alcaraz, though, it's the plus one, you know, just as much where I think he's someone who, you know, sometimes you'll you'll hit a return that's deep in the court. You'll hit, you'll hit a return that goes to his backhand. And, and these are things as a returner that you're trying to do in order to, you know, get to neutral, uh, off the return of serve. Sometimes you do these things against Runa. He's so good on the rise. He, his backhand can be so damaging that you check these boxes as a returner, things that you're doing well, and you're still getting hurt off of Runa's plus one ball. He has the ability to turn a, a quality return. And to kind of still generate offense on the plus one. That's been a major thing I've seen from him. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, you know, talking about Runa's serve, I before the Berbersi final, I watched uh, his US Open first round match against Djokovic. Uh, yeah, I don't think he was serving faster than maybe 110 miles an hour. And he was cramping for all of two sets out of four that they played. Um, and like you said, complete a sharp 180, uh, you know, a, a little more than a year later when he plays joke of the same player uh, in the base match of his life so far. Uh, he's down a set and he still has the belief. He saves three break points in a row in the first game in the second set. Uh, and yeah, and obviously the, final game where he did save six break points and served out the match eventually. Uh, I should point out that while you did mention that uh, Rune, I mean, Djokovic did have a boatload of chances in that match. That game in particular, there were six break points. I think four of them were definitely saved. Um, all credit to uh, Holger Rune. I think it was his serve plus one, or it was either an unreturned serve and most of them it was just a couple of break points where I would have regrets for Djokovic. And those were the ones where he did have a look at his second serve. One was uh, where he w- tried to go for a drop shot when he didn't really have to. And he missed. Uh, really I, I thought cool. it was the right shot, actually. I thought oh. I thought it was wide open and uh, and he just missed it. 
yeah, I guess it was just the execution. Maybe not the worst idea, but uh, much like what we saw in RG2020, there was just way too many drop shots, especially against Nadal in the final. It's in a way was his undoing in that first set. It wouldn't, I don't, I don't know if it would have been six love if not for that, but uh, there was, there was that. And then obviously the backhand pass, you would expect Novak to make it on usual circumstances and he did miss. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, we probably won't be uh, seeing Holgerun unless, you know, a player does pull out for whatever reason there is. Um, so I guess we can sort of go through the groups and talk about each player's chances. We'll start with, uh, I want to save the best for last. So we'll start with uh, the green group with Rafael Nadal, uh, Felix Auger, Aliasim, Casper Ruud, and Taylor Fritz. Obviously, I did jumble up the, the order a bit, but... You know, those are the players in that group. Um, so tell me, what do you think of Rafael Nadal's chances? I, I mean, everybody spoke about how this is a much favorable group than what people would have expected uh, in general with the kind of field. He did manage to avoid Djokovic, Medvedev and Tsitsipas uh, in his group. And obviously he does... Ha- Rude is a very favorable, favorable matchup for him. He's beaten Felix twice. Uh, before, although both of those meetings were on clay. And Fritz is a player who's given him trouble in the past, but at the same time, he has been injured in both of the matches that they played this year. So what do you think of Nadal's chances? Well, uh, it's been a while since we've seen him play well at the end of the day. Uh, it's been since Wimbledon. Rafa came back, you know, lost to Chorich in Cincinnati, didn't look good at the U.S. Open in any of his matches other than against Gaz K, where he kind of had that... There was that one moment where it's like, okay, it looks like Rafa played himself into form. And then in the next in the next match, he lost. Uh, Tommy Paul was a very similar opponent to Tiafo, who did very similar things. You know, he's got a he takes his backhand early very, very well, similar to what Novak Djokovic can do against Nadal, and really attacked uh Rafa's forehand corner. Um and Nadal's forehand defense was was really poor in that match in, in Paris. Um you know, the, the serving looked okay, uh, which was encouraging. You know, I didn't think the serving looked as bad as it did in New York. Um, a, a somewhat low bar, but but that's good. But ultimately, you know, you take the fact that it's been a while since we've seen Nadal play well, and then, you know, you throw him on, you know, in this indoor hard court in, a, in an event he's never won, and you put him up against firepower, uh, really good serving, you know, power players in, in Felix and, and Taylor Fritz. You know, normally I don't think like firepower is an issue for Nadal, but in these conditions, like it's in these conditions. And if you're lacking rhythm and if you're lacking confidence, there's just a lot of, I think, discomfort for Rafa. So I understand why he's playing this event. Um, He feels like he hasn't played nearly enough and he needs to get those match repetitions in going into the off season. He doesn't want to you know feel like come january when it's time to return to tour action that everything about it feels foreign that you know the the feelings the nerves that you get uh from playing a match you know you want to have those in your short-term memory and i think that's why nadal's playing i get the decision do i really think he's uh playing to to win the title as he normally would be not exactly i i think he knows that there's not a great chance of that happening. If he didn't make the semifinals, you know, I wouldn't be surprised either way. Uh, semifinals, no semifinals. I would be very surprised if he won the title. Yeah, no, I, I think I have the same, same thoughts exactly, really. Um, I, I'm i not feeling too confident. His Yeah, his match against Tommy Paul Reed didn't fill me that, with any confidence. Um you know, since Wimbledon, he just hasn't looked right. You know, that ab's been really affecting him. I think I read earlier that he hurt his ab again before the US Open as well. So I just don't think I have any confidence in his body right now. And I'm a bit concerned it's starting to give up on him entirely. I hope that's not true. But, you know, he does need to listen to his body at some point. And, you know, it's yeah, it's not the kind of tournament he wants to come into with little confidence and you know, little belief and little form. Um, and he's got a he's he has got a really good group, you know, considering he could have been stuck with Medvedev or Djokovic or Sitspass, who can definitely expose him on these courts. But um, you know, I 
Uh, yeah, I think, as you said, I think he's just going to want to go and get match practice and get ready. And, you know, he can play himself in a bit more against Casper and Taylor, for sure. I think I think Aldrich seems going to just fire, you know, serves and plus ones down at him all day. And he's going to put him under, under the cosh all the time. But I think Fritz, you know, Fritz and Nadal have quite interesting matchups, you know, and they always seem to be injured when they play each other. But they, uh, they still produce quite, quite fun tennis. And Casper, yeah, I mean, he wilted against Rafa, unfortunately, in the uh, Roland Garros final. So not sure how that matchup will go. But yeah, either way, I, I could see him maybe getting one win, but I don't think he'll qualify. I think when you look at the conditions, you, you kind of need to think Felix and Taylor are the top two favourites to come out of that group, really, even though it is quite a good draw for Rafa. Here's the positive. Rafa gets two weak backhands to play against. Now, Felix's has looked pretty good recently, but I think when you can get it there repeatedly, it, it will prove to be a, a shot that is not going to produce um, you know, great success in, in neutral rallies. Um, and, and Casper... Also, his backhand is, you know, got better, looked good in New York. But that that's another shot that I think Rafa, you know, we know in his baseline patterns, he's excellent at exploiting that. So from a matchup perspective, you do you do look at Rude and Felix um, as as two guys with, you know, somewhat exploitable backhands. Taylor Fritz, not at all. It's an excellent backhand. It's more the mobility that I think Rafa can can look to exploit on that end. Um that's the positive. The negative, as I as I mentioned, is that all three have quite a bit of serve plus one firepower. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. But uh, I think there could be something similar to twenty nineteen that could happen. I expect the match against Felix to be the one where Felix comes out all guns blazing and just takes out Nadal, right? Like much like Zverev did. Uh, and then Nadal maybe squeaks a win against Taylor Fritz, uh, which is the first match, of course. And I do expect him to beat Rude, even in these conditions. Uh, sure, it, if you look at both players, they just don't enjoy indoor hard courts. But Rude, I think, uh, not as much as Nadal, I would say, even though both of them you know, sort of struggle in these conditions and they just don't like playing here. Sure, Casper Ruud did make the semifinal, so I'm. I don't know what to think. Either he, I mean, he loves proving us wrong, right? Uh, at the beginning of the year, uh, he he won Buenos Aires. He didn't play the Australian Open. He was injured, and going into the uh, clay swing, he was in poor form, losing early in Monte Carlo, Barcelona, and Madrid. He makes the semis in Rome. He makes the final at RG. Uh, something similar here. He makes the final at the U.S. Open. He's four and four since, two and four on the ATP Tour. Uh, two of those wins coming in, at the Davis Cup and Labor Cup. Uh, but then again, uh, who knows, right? He, uh, playing against Felix, he's beaten him. He could have that confidence. Uh, that match against Fritz, you can't, you can't really say, uh, even though Fritz plays a lot better in these conditions and has a much better game suited to these conditions than Casper Root does, I still wouldn't say that he's the heavy favorite for that. So you could still, you just never know, right? Maybe, and sometimes players do end up qualifying, have, uh, you know, winning one out of the three matches in the round robin. So it could happen, but I'm still more inclined to think that, you know, he probably is going out in the round robin stage. Uh, so I guess we've spoken about Nadal and Felix. I'm sorry, Rude. So we'll probably come back to Felix. Do you think he will win the group? I do. Yeah. I, I think when I think about that matchup with Nadal, I see Felix being able to keep the points short, which is a, obviously, you know, a huge key in that head to head in the, in these conditions. I, I see short points. Um, I see Felix having a lot of success on his inside out forehand, uh, which is a very key shot for him. It's a, it's a way to attack that Nadal forehand wing. I just don't think he's defending it well right now. Um, on these hard courts, um, you know, the, the confidence is, is obviously there for Felix. I think the match at Roland Garros that they played where, uh, you know, FAA uh, took Rafa to five sets, played one of the best matches of, of his season. Um, certainly in the middle portion of the season, it was probably Felix's best match, even though he lost. Um, 
you know, so I, I think, you know, mentally Felix will, will have a lot of belief and, you know, with how hot he is, um, you know, and then against Taylor Fritz and, and Casper Ruud, um, Fritz is an interesting one. There's nothing that really sticks out tactically as I, you know, on, on first thought, I could do some deeper thinking about it maybe. Um, but with Casper, I think his ball is better on quick, you know, low bouncing kind of courts. Like I think the problem for Rude is the forehand, you know, when he doesn't get that jump off the court, when the court doesn't take to the top spin, it just, it really, really hurts him. And obviously Felix takes the ball early. He hits it hard, flat through the court. Um, there, there actually is a lot of topspin on his forehand, but you know, it's not, there's not a lot of shape, right? It's, it's hit more like a laser, um, less like a grenade. Um, and, and that really helps Felix and offensively, um, I would, I would favor FAA over Rude. So I would get Felix to two and one or three and oh, and you know, I think, I think the Fritz matchup is the one that I can't quite figure out tactically at the moment, but the other two, I like Felix. Yeah. I think when it comes to, yeah, I think when it comes to Felix v Fritz, it's going to be just a case of who gets that big first strike in, you know, um, I've been really, really impressed with Fritz this year, to be honest, you know, his, his movement's got a whole lot better. I know it's still exploitable, but, um, yeah, you know, his backhands come on leaps and bounds. You know, I remember watching you at, as an 18 year old, you know, and, you know, he was a father and, you know, it was this new, new guy to the tour. And all I saw in his game really was a big forehand and a decent serve. And he's become so well-rounded now. And yeah, I, I think he's moving so much better. You know, he annihilated Kyrgios this year in, um, which tournament was it? Cincy. It was one of the, yeah, it was Cincy. And um, yeah, he just moved brilliantly. You know, Kyrgios, you know, looked like he couldn't really be bothered at times, but, still moving the ball around and Fritz was just getting to everything. Um so I I think Fritz's chance are really good. And yeah, I I I still think Felix is the far better player right now. Um and especially on these courts. So as long as Felix doesn't have one of those days where nothing's going in, which he does have unfortunately, and he looks tired and just off the pace against Bruno the other day in Paris. But I I would I can see Felix going three and zero. That matchup with Fritz could be a really really fun match actually. Felix's movement is is more dynamic um, than than Taylor's, and I I think his uh, transition game is a lot more dynamic than Taylor's, and I think that you know that combination of of maybe just being able to kind of take advantage of the opportunities off the ground um, to attack potentially a little bit more efficiently than, than Fritz can. Cause you know, Fritz tries to kind of hit through the court with power, but I will say backhand to backhand. Uh, I, I think Fritz, is, Fritz now has one of the more, one of the better backhands in the world in terms of his precision on that side um, where I do think Felix will need to try to avoid that pattern because Fritz will have him. I think in the consistency department, in the quality department, like Taylor on the backhand, he never really leaves the ball in the middle of the court, never leaves the ball short. Like even if it's not this scary offensive weapon that's going to kind of take over um, from from neutral positions all the time, Fritz's backhand is just dominant, d- dynamite in the sense that um, the accuracy is so good on it. Yeah, uh, so I guess that covers green group. So we move on to red group, the one with the most anticipation, of course. Uh, I should uh, preface this by saying that it is disappointing from uh, the eye of someone who's neutral and objective and wants the best for the sport that we won't have all three of Novak Djokovic, Daniel Medvedev and Stefano Tsitsipas in the semifinal. Uh, One of those three... uh, or, or more, uh, you know, is going to end up going out in the round robin stage. That being said, I do want to start with Daniel Medvedev because here's something really interesting. His last top 10 win was against Tsitsipas himself back in January in the semifinal of the Australian Open, right? And uh, he's playing three players in uh, who he has lost his 
previous match against. I don't know how much that matters, but it'll be really interesting to see how that really affects him. He lost to Ruben the last time they played in Cincinnati last year. He lost to Steph the last time they played in Cincinnati this year. And he lost to uh, Djokovic, of course, in Astana. But then again, you know, he was pretty much dominating most of that match until he got injured and had to retire. Uh, that being said, I, uh, I think personally, uh, I'll, I'll be bold here and I'll say that he's the one to win the group. And I think Djokovic will be uh, the one to finish second. And I want to hear your thoughts on, you know, what, how you think that'll pan out. Well, you know, Medvedev's shown a lot of good signs. I, I was surprised by the Demonor loss, although I, I think there are some things that, that Alex does, first of all, being really, really speedy. And that can get to Daniil sometimes when he feels like he can't finish points. Uh, the second thing that Demonor is, is really good at is finishing points at net. Another thing that I think really helps against Medvedev. But, you know, overall, it's really the second time this year that I've come into uh, an event thinking, okay, it's now time for Medvedev to just rekindle the form. Uh, the first time was when he won Los Cabos, and I thought he looked great. And it was like, all right, it's his time of year. Here we go. It's going to be Daniil Medvedev time. And then it wasn't. You know, he takes the loss to Pass, which you mentioned. He loses to Nick Kyrgios. Uh, then he loses to Nick Kyrgios again at the U.S. Open. Um, again, you know, two guys who took advantage of net play, transition play, to, to get through Medvedev's defense. Um, so I, he's been very unpredictable for me. I've been waiting for him to kind of come back because I, I know it's going to happen. Um, and he looked amazing in Astana. So, you know, before he got injured against Novak Djokovic, in terms of him losing the last match against the the three other players, Rublev, I think, doesn't matter. You know, it was a match where he, can I curse on the podcast? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'll make sure to mark uh, explicit <laughs> on this. So, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> he lost his shit on the camera. And that's why he lost the match. And I think anyone who was watching the match saw that and would agree with that. Like, it was very clear why he lost the match. It was because of the camera. I definitely agree. I mean, putting my bias aside as a Medvedev fan, I agree because that is a matchup he's dominated, right? He didn't even lose a set up until that point. And like you said, he yeah. loses his bollocks at, uh, <laughs> after running into the camera, right? Uh, Injuring himself pretty much for the entire match obviously didn't affect him uh, at the U.S. Open, which he did end up winning. But that did help Rublev in large part, not to take anything away from Rublev. But then I think that uh, is an exception rather than a new trend, if you want to say. Agreed. And then the Djokovic match in Astana, I bet Daniil Medvedev in his mind, and this is what an athlete should do, I bet he thinks that's a win. You know, he probably thinks I had the match, I was about to win the match, and then I got hurt. So I think in Daniil's head, he feels like that, you know, was a win. It's the Tsitsipas matchup, which is by far the most interesting because it has been a matchup on hard court. Medvedev had dominated. That match, again, it, that match in uh, Canada, or Cincy, I'm forgetting now. It was Cincy. Cincy. Yeah. Uh, was the by far the smartest Tsitsipas has ever played against Medvedev, uh, using the serve and volley, taking the ball early and coming forward against him. He may have unlocked something there. So the other two head-to-heads I'm not concerned about, the Tsitsipas, their last match, I, I feel like that's significant what happened there. And I take that into account, and I, I really think that Tsitsipas moving forward will have a better chance against Daniil because he now has a blueprint. He knows what to do. Yeah, it also depends on the execution, which was, I think, inch perfect from Steph uh, in that match. Of course, Medvedev, I think he served 13 or 14 double faults, pretty much handed a break uh, on a platter in that deciding set. And the second set got really weird as well because he was serving for it 5-1, gets broken to love. Uh, and then he's serving for it again at 5-3. He's down love 40. He somehow scrambles and gets that set. And then I think he just loses it over fireworks, something like that, right? Deja vu of 2021. <laughs> something has to happen in the semifinal of Cincinnati. Uh, the only player he has beaten in the semifinal of Cincinnati is Djokovic, which is startling. But anyway, uh, that happens. And sure, but I, I don't want to take anything away from Steph. I think that win was a lot more impressive 
than Rublev's win against Medvedev last year. And like you said, he could have unlocked something because he was executing the very much, very much the same tactics at at the Australian Open, the semifinal. You you did see him approach the net quite a bit, pretty much on every point in the first set. He was the one who was more under duress on serve in that first set. I think Medvedev. I don't I don't know if he even dropped a point until the tiebreaker. I remember Sitsipas was down love forty at four all, uh, in the first set, and obviously he was. Uh, you know, approaching the net still uh, with conviction each point. Uh, Medvedev obviously is a really good. Uh, he's really good with passing shots, and we do remember that backhand down the line passing shot he hit uh, the year before against Steph at the Australian Open, the one which got him the break to serve for the match. Uh, but Steph had the net covered really well, and he also used the drop shot well, if I remember correctly, in Cincinnati. Uh, he used it well against Djokovic too in Bercy the moment he started to turn it around in the second set. So like you said, that'll be interesting. And even though the head-to-head is 7-3 in Medvedev's favor, which on paper seems like a landslide, Steph has actually won three of their last five matches. So that, I think, is still, you know, for these two reasons, that's interesting. Do I think Medvedev is the favorite to come out uh, as the victor in that matchup? Absolutely. But I do think that, I mean, Matchup wise, in general, they produce some of uh, the most eye catching tennis anyway. Uh, it could be one of the matches of the year uh, if both players show up for that match. And I would say very much the same for the other two matchups within this trio of players in this group, uh, which I guess uh, leaves us with Andre Rublev, sort of a black sheep, I guess, in that group. Hmm. Uh, well, I was, was going to say for uh, for Steph as well. One thing I really was impressed by in his win over Medvedev in Cincinnati was his slice. Uh, he, he used it really, really well. He kept digging that slice in, and he kept opening up, you know, the court for him to swat a forehand away. Um, and you know, that's been one of the things that people have criticised Steph a lot for in the last couple of years is not having a good slice. You know, got the one on the back, and you need a good slice for sure. And it's it's getting there, I think. You know, I, I do I do feel for him because he got a lot of criticism for not improving his return of serve and his slice over the offseason. He didn't have an offseason. He was recovering from elbow surgery. You know, he came straight back into competition, like, you know, 3rd of January, lost to Schwartzman. Um, but then he makes the Australian Open semifinals. And although he had a disappointing year at the slams, you know, he lost to Runa in, in the fourth round, Roland Garros, you know, lost, lost early in Wimbledon awful first round loss at the US Open. He's had such a good year outside the slams. And I am really starting to see some genuine improvements to his game. I don't think he's still well gone backwards, as quite a few people have said. Yeah, and people like to talk about that backhand a lot. I should say it has become a lot more tolerant, at least uh, in the last few tournaments. It held up really well against Djokovic. If you look at that point at 5-4 in the deciding set tiebreaker, it was the backhand that set up the point. And very questionable choice of shot from Sitsipas to go inside out on the forehand instead of just putting it away, right? I I, I don't know if Gil is going to disagree with what I'm going to say from the look of it. It seems like it, but yeah, I'll let you uh, have the mic here. Well, okay, it was an excellent backhand. Um, so let me, let me throw that aside. I'll get to that in a second. There were three points in that tie break where Tsitsipas had a, a comfortable backhand under no pressure. Uh, so a trade, in my view. Not a ball to attack, not a ball you're defending, just a neutral ball on the backhand. He missed one, which is okay. You know, one backhand error a week, that's okay. There were another two where he hit it, and it was short, and it was central, and Djokovic finished on a forehand. Um, so I, I think... I think it's still at a point, especially under pressure, where if you can get it to that backhand, you're not necessarily going to get him to miss, especially, you know, especially if he's not under on the run, if he's not under pressure. I don't think it's an erratic shot at all, but I do think that's where you get your balls in the middle of the court to attack, and Djokovic was able to do that. In fact, the two errors that Novak made in the tiebreak, he was trying to change direction on his forehand, desperately trying to force it to the Tsitsipas backhand. So if you look at how those baseline rallies were played, at least from Novak's point of view, it was, I'm going to make him hit a million backhands here and I'll take my chances. 
And I do think it worked because I thought Djokovic won three points by nature of just getting weak trades. Only one was a miss, but three weak trades from the Tsitsipas backhand. Um, I also, though, will defend will defend Stefanos on the uh, forehand approach shot because, you know, when you look at, at the time the ball bounces on Tsitsipas' side of the court, the orientation of Djokovic's hips um, make it look like he's completely sold out for covering the open court. And I think at that moment, Tsitsipas thought, well, you know, he's just going to keep running and he's not covering the backhand side. You know, the fact that Novak stopped and stayed in his corner and kind of flipped his hips and then had, you know, set up the passing shot. I thought it was good off ball movement by Novak and that Djokovic actually deserves a lot of credit more so than Tsitsipas for playing the wrong shot there. But uh, I tweeted the screenshots. It was a big, you know, debate. Everyone kind of had had their opinions, and that was great because uh, I like it when we get a big point like that between two top players and we can have that kind of debate. Yeah, no, I, I do agree. I, I think a lot of, you know, players with, you know, a ferocious forehand like Steph. I think so many in that in that position would have done the exact same thing. I think, yeah, Djokovic is just a genius, an evil genius, really. Like, who does that? Who, like, rotates their hips to make them look like they're going to be sprinting to, you know, the other end of the court, and then they just, you know, backtrack and just... He's done that quite a bit. I do remember yeah. that point against Nishikori in Rome 2018, where he started to run the other way. To distract K, he had that smash that he missed, literally dumped to the net. It was the third set, and Djokovic did something really similar in Madrid when they met. Uh, he's that's done the worst, quite a that's bit. the worst smash of all time, by the way. That, yeah, the yeah. worst smash I've ever seen in my which time. Which one? And Nishikori's. Oh, I don't know if, which one Jethro was talking about. Probably the one that Djokovic hit against Nishikori. Yeah, the one Djokovic hit against Nishikori. in Madrid 2018. The one he's like jogging up to the net. <laughs> And he just, oh my god, that was a train wreck. But Nishikori, I, I, every time I see it, I can't believe he hit it. And it was like low into the net as well. He was like, there's even a gif of that on Twitter, right? So, like, <laughs> that, that's how that's that's how big a meme that is. But, um, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I remember losing my shit then because uh, that was 2018, right? Djokovic went to the match, what, five and five for the year. And I'm like, you cannot afford this. Nishikori is a tough match in the first round of a Masters like get real anyway digressing of course uh, we should uh, probably talk about Rublev really unfortunate right uh, Medvedev and Djokovic more so Medvedev who is a nightmare for him especially in these conditions um, and yeah. Djokovic of course we did see how they played each other last year on this very court Rublev started with a break in the in the opening game he got broken back immediately and then Djokovic obviously played excellently and then Rublev just didn't have any answers and I remember Djokovic clearly saying that not uh he didn't say this verbatim but he did say that Rublev is quite one-dimensional that when things start to get away from him he it, they just continue to do so and he doesn't try to find any solution to that uh but there are a few matches where Rublev I think he, he can. I'm not saying he cannot, but I don't know if he can really do it uh, against an elite opposition who have him by the neck, right? Like start to uh, problem solve his way uh, into a match, like try a few different tactics, see how they work. Uh, I've rarely seen him come to the net even, right? Uh, so I, I cannot think of anything that he, he would be doing. Like Sitsipas is sort of an even matchup for him historically. It's just, it's six and four for Steph. Uh, and the last two matches that they played with this year in Madrid and Astana, both of them were close, three setters. Um, and obviously, although I wouldn't put too much uh, weight on this win of Rublev's against Tsitsipas last year in Turin, because Steph, you know, obviously withdrew from the tournament immediately after because uh, he had to undergo surgery for his elbow. But I, I, I'm kind of fearing that we are sleeping on him a bit. But then again, I just don't see how else he could like even make a dent in the group he is in. Yeah, I mean, okay, so yeah, the the results on indoor hard court are are excellent, and um, you know, I I think he's played he's played you know good tennis post U.S. Open, but at the same time, uh, 
one top one top ten matchup. You know, it was against Tsitsipas and Astana. He lost uh, in in three sets. And and as you as you said, like the Tsitsipas head to head is the only one that tactically works for Rublev. Because if you look at Rublev's strengths, he rushes players. You know, he he takes the ball early, hits it really hard, doesn't miss very much. Um, which gets you very, very far. Like people attack him sometimes on the lack of variety. You know, it, it's it's kind of silly sometimes. It's like what he does is good enough against, you know, almost everyone. Um, but you can't rush Djokovic and Medvedev. You know, it doesn't really happen. Uh, Medvedev's maybe sometimes on the forehand a little bit, but it's really, really hard. Uh, another thing that Rublev does very well is attack backhands with with his inside out forehand and you know his inside in forehand. He's very good um, at at hitting forehands from the backhand side of the court and kind of rushing those righty backhands. If you look at his head to heads, he plays team well. He plays Tsitsipas well. He plays Berrettini well. Like these are righty backhands that you can attack. And then you have Medvedev and Djokovic, and it's like, all right. Uh, that side is just uh, on another level. So I, I, I agree with you about that. There's not, there doesn't seem to be the, the ability for Rublev to do what he needs to do in those head to heads. I have seen him in the last couple matchups against Medvedev, take some pace off the ball and be selective with, you know, when he's going to inject pace in the rallies, which is great. That's very smart. Uh, you give Medvedev pace, he says, thank you very much. Uh, you have to pick your spots. Um, so he started to do that. That's good. But I don't think it's enough. You know, I, I look at two losses for Rublev against Djokovic and Medvedev. Um, and a, then a, a close match against Tsitsipas. Um, I I see a, I see an 0-3 or, or a 1-2. and two. Yeah, he I think might I'm, take a set from oh, Novak, uh, I think. But Medvedev, yeah, I don't know. All of his losses have been in straight sets. Uh, uh, pretty much looked the same, you know, in their last meeting as well. But, you know, like we already discussed, I think circumstances did favor Rublev there. So I don't really look too much into that match. Uh, Novak, yeah, he tends to have some blips sometimes, so I can see that match maybe going three, but not a close one. Maybe drop a set in a tiebreaker or something like that to Rublev. But uh, yeah, I think Jethro wants to say something at this point. Yeah, so I think that match match up with Sitz Pass is going to be huge because that's the match that they both think they can win. They're most likely to win, I think. You know, um, um, I've always you know, been really impressed with how Rublev plays against team, you know, he just absolutely goes after him, just like how team does to all these players, and team you know, funny enough, can attack Medvedev and can attack Djokovic and rush them and just hit them off the court, which Rublev can't do at all, and I think that's also to do with the fact that Rublev hits so flat and he has no spin, um, and the ball especially on these indoor hard courts, just Djokovic and Medvedev are so balanced that they can just you know, counter punch so well Um I'm kind of reminded of 2020 when, you know, Diego qualified and he had Zverev, Medvedev, Djokovic in his group. And obviously he went 0-3 and, you know, bless Diego. He's, he's a, he was, he's a fantastic player and he had a great year in 2020, but uh, indoor hard courts aren't really a scene. Um, and it's a bit like that for Rublev. And Rublev's a fantastic indoor hard court player, but he is just going to run into better players than him, you know? Um, and I think Rublev and Berrettini, what they kind of share at the minute is they're great gatekeepers. They always pretty much always be the player that they should be. Mm-hmm. But when they come up against someone who's got an amazing two-hander, amazing defence, great poise, great balance, that's when things start to unravel a little bit for them. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm predicting 0-3 for Rublev, and I think it's going to be an absolute dogfight between uh, Djokovic, Sitspas, and Medvedev, really. Yeah, uh, I should mention one thing about Rublev, which could be some sort of consolation for him and his fans. Whenever he's played Sitsipas indoors... It's either been a comfortable win for Rublev or a tough win for Sitsipas. If I, I'm reminded of 2020 ATP Finals, where you know obviously Steph uh, raced out to a six-one lead, and that match obviously uh, started to get a lot better. Got to a stage where Rublev served for the match in the tiebreaker, had a match point at six-five, double fault, and ended up losing. Uh, 
Then there's last year's match that we mentioned in Turin, which Rublev won four and four. There's Rotterdam last year, which I think, uh, I believe Rublev also won in straight sets. And there was the match in Astana uh, this year, where I think Rublev took the first set, ended up losing. Uh, it was still a closely contested match. So I don't know if that really is a trend or just a coincidence, but uh, yeah, that I think that's, he he would favor that match uh, quite a bit, I would say. Um, he he has he can he can play without uh, having much to lose, really. And yeah, like we mentioned, Djokovic and Medvedev, I just don't see any way where he can beat them unless you know the other players either is compromised physically somehow or just has a really bad day. Uh, right. So I think so. Let's predict our semifinalists from both of the groups. All right, um, so I have Felix. Um, I'm going to go Felix and, and Fritz. And I'm going to do Tsitsipas and Djokovic. What about you, Jethro? Hmm, I don't... This is that's annoying because I was I think I was going to say the same. Um, so I'll <laughs> go different. I'll go I'll go exciting. I'll go Felix and Rude. I'm gonna I'm gonna bank on Rude surprising everyone again because that's always fun. And I'll go Djokovic and Medvedev. But I think Mets for me since fast Medvedev, you know, fifty fifty. Don't really. Yeah, I mean, it could come to a stage where they play. It could. I'm saying if that is, uh, I have Medvedev winning the group and Djokovic coming second, but if if the match between Djokovic and Medvedev goes Djokovic's way, we could have, and obviously granted Djokovic beats Tsitsipas, we could have a scenario where Medvedev and Tsitsipas play for a spot in the semifinal, a knockout match, if you if you will. Uh, so I'm going with Felix and Fritz uh, from Green Group and Medvedev and Djokovic from the Red Group. And, you know, I think Fritz will go two and one, much like Jack Sock did in 2017. I could see a similar run. Um, yeah, I don't see him crossing the semifinal. Obviously, depends on... Uh, uh, I mean, if he does get the semifinal, uh, according to my predictions, at least he'd get either Djokovic or Medvedev. I don't see him beating either. So, semifinal is a good result. And I think it's it, it would be befitting for someone who is you know, largely been underrated this year, but at the same time has, you know, sprung some really good results and has been consistent for, you know, most part of the season. Should we do winners? Yeah, sure. We could. Uh, Right. Uh, I'll go last again. Uh, Who do you think, Gil, is winning the 2022 NITO ADB finals? Well, um, I definitely have, well, I think it's, uh, I think Djokovic. I think um, at this point, I haven't seen a lot of great reason at all uh, to to pick against him. I think he's fresh and motivated more so than usual uh, at this time of year. In recent years, we haven't seen him win this since 2015. Um, I, I, you know, I look at that paris Bercy final, uh, I, I really do think it was, one of those kind of rare two, three times a year matches for Novak where nothing went right for him. And, you know, he just didn't have a great day in the office, but level wise, I think other than that, like he's, he's really been awesome. And, you know, as hot as Felix has been, um, as good as, as Tsitsipas looked in, in Bear C, I can't make an argument for anyone else right now. Yeah, um, I think that's that's a very reasonable pick, but I'm gonna try and keep it fun keep for myself at least. And yeah. yeah, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for Felix. Um, I just had a feeling a few weeks ago, and I'll I'll stick to that. Although I will not be surprised if Djokovic just clean sweeps everyone, and, you know, ends the year on a massive high. Yeah, I mean, look, maybe Felix runs the table. I mean, this has been an awesome run. I think we've seen this before, like at this time of year when you get really hot. Um, sometimes it, it can be a real leg up um, because, you know, y- you start to get that 
that offensive confidence in the indoor on the indoor hard courts. And it just goes such a long way uh, to, to play to those low margins and to actually do that successfully uh, can be a really big deal. Um, I almost think Felix, I know it's good to rest. I get that, but I almost wonder if, if the week off is going to take some of the, the, the momentum away and the, the shine off. Um, we'll see. Right. Uh, I should ask you, who do you uh, see Djokovic playing in the final? I mean, uh, from your predictions, it would be one of Felix or Tsitsipas, right? Assuming yeah. you have Djokovic winning the group, that is. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I'd love to see Felix Tsitsipas. I, that'd be fantastic. Um, I, I go Stefanos at the moment. Um, okay. So, in a way... We have similar predictions. For me, it's Medvedev instead of Sitsipas. I think that's going to be the repeat match. Uh, uh, I'm assuming you have Djokovic winning both of the matches that they play. Uh, and seeing Djokovic go 11-2 in the head-to-head, I think Medvedev beats Djokovic in a round-robin, makes the final, loses to him in the loses to Djokovic in the final. Uh, very much like last year with Zverev and Medvedev. And... I want to say 2015 as well with Djokovic and Federer and 2018 with Djokovic and Zverev. That's amazing that it's happened as often as it has, huh? Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's just the beauty of the tournament, I think. Uh, you know, you get to play, uh, you get multiple chances, right? Having uh, made it to the top eight, these are the best players in the world at the moment. So I think it's really great for the sport that. Um, I did speak about this on a Twitter space yesterday with John Silk from Talking Tennis. Uh, for those of you who haven't already, do subscribe to his YouTube channel. But uh, yeah, I did mention that uh, there have been a lot of scenarios where we have had repeat matches from either Shanghai, Paris, and or Paris, and at the ATP Finals. Uh, last year and the year before, we had Zverev and Medvedev, right? Zverev played Medvedev in the final in 2020, lost. The very next match he played was against Medvedev in the first round-robin match in 2020, lost that as well. Uh, 2013, same thing with Federer. He loses to Djokovic in the semis, and then he plays him. uh, That was the uh, first round-robin match in that group uh, that Djokovic played against Federer in 2013. Uh, Same thing will happen with Tsitsipas this year. His last match was against Novak in the semis. And he, his very next match is going to be against Novak, which I think for him would be great because that match doesn't linger too long uh, in his mind, right? He may have some regrets. He thinks, okay, I was up a mini break. I had him. Uh, finally, another win uh, against him after more than three years was on the horizon after having come quite close on several occasions, you know, during the last couple of years. But he has another shot, right? Um 2010 and 2012 as well, uh, Andy Murray beat Federer in Shanghai, but then Federer flipped that result. From what we've discussed, obviously 2018 too, Zverev got annihilated by Djokovic in Shanghai in the semifinal and the round-robin match, but he flips the table completely in the final. And I think that's what excites me the most. And, you know, uh, in some way, I think at least two of the three of us here envision a scenario where there's a repeat match at this year's ATP finals as well. Uh, all in all, I think one thing we can agree on, even though we have different predictions for who the winner it may be. I don't know who Jethro picked to be the winner. Was it Djokovic as well? Felix. Oh, Felix. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, right. So two of us going for Novak, one for Felix. Uh, yeah, one thing we can agree on is this edition is going to be really exciting. And at least uh, let's hope it lives up to the hype. With that, we close and... I want to thank Gil once again for coming on to the show. It was a pleasure having you on. Hope to uh, have you on, uh, you know, in the near future sometime and, you know, several more times um, in probably the next year or, you know, during the off season. So it was, it was great chatting with you about the ATP finals. Happy to do it. Um, Shirhari, I've, I've, I've known you on Twitter, but good to, to meet you. Uh, more in well through zoom and uh jethro great great to meet you happy to come on um and enjoy the event thanks mate really really nice to have you on really good to chat about about what is going to be a really really exciting week yeah um and 
to all of the listeners. Thanks for sticking it through this far. And please make sure to rate us five stars on Spotify and um, Apple Podcasts and um, do share around our podcast with those who are not really on tennis Twitter and wouldn't otherwise be aware of our show. We'll see you soon.